Thank you for tuning in to Chicken and Dreams. It's your boy Amar and you found yourself in episode 7. For the uninitiated, I scroll through my contact list, pick someone and ask them how COVID-19 has affected their lives. Today's date is April 11 and why am I telling you this? It's because the US becomes the first country to record over 2,000 coronavirus deaths in the last 24 hours. For those who like stats, the average number of deaths in the states is 7,500. This represents a 26% increase in the death rate. With the US having so many cases of the virus, I think it's best to turn to those living there and get their perspective. Today, I have Mariam, who's a pediatrician in the great state of Florida. Mariam, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Thanks, Amar. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Um, Today's my first day off, so I think that's good news. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this when you're probably going through so much right now. Really appreciate it. So when did COVID-19 become real for you? Um, So I guess it depends on what you consider real. Um, I think that the idea that there was a novel strain of an otherwise very common virus that we consider, um, the coronavirus was more evident, I'd say, in February. Um, So just to go into some background, I'm sure people know the coronavirus 19 is just a strain of which we get every year very commonly, and we say it's a common cold. Um, And then we just kind of brush it off as that. But then since the hysteria and the response to the hysteria that ensued after that, I think that made it a lot more real to me. Um, At the hospitals now, it's basically, it's pretty much empty and everyone is wearing masks. And then when you go out, you see them even wearing gloves outside. And when you look outside, it's like a desert. So I've seen videos of um, the streets of Toronto and New York City, and there's no one there, which is, it never happened. So I think that's what's making it more real. Um, And on top of that, the constant news coverage, that's what's been going on. We've seen a lot of politics, as you mentioned, come into play, especially Mm -hmm. with the governor of Florida facing off with different municipalities in the states. What's the situation overall in Florida at the moment? So in Florida, um, so we have different counties, right? Um, But in the state of Florida, I think there are around, I would say, I think 18,000 reported confirmed cases, and we've had about 400 deaths. And then in the area I live, there have been about 600 confirmed cases and 11 deaths. So it's actually not that bad here compared to, I guess, like New York State or even um, like in New Jersey, where there are a lot more cases. So given that, I think um, the governor of Florida was really, he was criticized a lot for delaying measures to control this. But if you look at the numbers, it was more a cost-benefit analysis as to what will we achieve by closing everything down and if it's even necessary at this point. So some other things, um, in Florida, obviously, you have a huge disparity between the rich and the poor. So where I live, we have, or where I work, we have um, a large population of Families belong to a lower socioeconomic status. Um, And those people, I mean, if you think about it, if you are worried about drugs, homicide, things like just dying from not having enough food, do you really think those people care about a respiratory virus? They don't because they have bigger issues to deal with. And they're just living off paycheck to paycheck every day and closing down the entire state would have a huge effect on them. So it is a hugely politicized issue. I think that's been going on, especially in the U.S. Um, and that that's something that I think for years to come, we're going to look back and say, did we do the right thing? Did we do it too late? What did we actually achieve, if anything at all? I'm going to admit you're one of the very few people who have a different opinion to the government responses to COVID-19. 
mm-hmm. especially with regards to stay-at-home orders. And when I'm going through other social media like Instagram or Twitter, I find that you're not like an outlier. Other people have the same similar concerns. Would you care to walk me through why that is? Yeah. So the thing with me is that obviously as a healthcare provider, we want to make sure people are safe, right? We we don't like people dying. Okay. That's how it is. And I think that's with everyone. But at the same time, we've been educated to know that there are risks of disease and certain populations are higher risk where people are going to die no matter what you do. So given that, I mean, that's obviously a very frank statement. Obviously, death is a very significant issue for people, especially, you know, everyone has someone that they love. It's a big deal. But the problem with this is when I started looking at the numbers, and we obviously get our guidelines from the CDC and the World Health Organization, right? So as healthcare professionals, when you start getting these guidelines, and then you start seeing the numbers, and then they don't add up, and then the guidelines are constantly changing, you really start questioning the severity of this disease. I'm not saying it's not severe. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. It does. The population of New York is overwhelmed. You know, they don't have enough beds. People are dying there. But I don't think that's translating to everywhere. So I'm just going to talk about the U.S. alone. Okay. So the CDC recently um, came out with a guideline that they said, you have to assume every single person has COVID. So if someone comes in with a pink eye, that could be COVID. If someone comes in with a headache, that could be COVID. So if this virus is deadly enough to cause a worldwide lockdown, we need to test everybody. But we're not testing everyone because obviously it has a lot to do with money. And the the U.S. didn't want to buy tests or pay tests for pay for tests from other um, agencies or countries. So that's number one. And number two Initially, there weren't enough tests. So if we're not going to test everyone, you can't assume everyone has COVID. But since now we're going to assume that everyone in the world has COVID, the numerator should be around 7.8 billion people, which is the population of the world, if you're going to say every single person has it. And so if that's your numerator, now you look at your denominator, which is, you know, or you can switch it around, sorry. That would be your denominator and your numerate and your death rate at the top would be every person that's dying from COVID. And the problem with this is that the CDC also has guidelines that now say any presumed or assumed kind of cause of death from any respiratory issue, including pneumonia, whether or not it could be the flu or anything can be attributed to COVID. So now you have this skewed death rate where something could have been a COVID-caused illness or a COVID-caused death, but it could be anything else. And if you're going to assume that as well, then we look at the worldwide death rate, which is around 1.5 million. So if you do the math, 1.5 million people dying out of 7.8 billion people in the world is less than 1%. And that's what doesn't make sense to me, that a less than 1% mortality rate is getting everyone panicked. And I don't support the panic that the news and the media has been spreading to everyone because fear can make people do a lot of things. Fear has the power to make you sit at home, lose your freedom of going out. You know, people are losing jobs. People are losing their livelihood. People are dying because they're sitting at home. People with anxiety and depression kind of disorders, they're dying from the stuff that's happening. People who can't put food on their table are dying from starvation. You have people who are victims of domestic violence who are living at home whose only escape from that violence was work and school. Those people are dying. 
Right. And we, we feel that, you know, we can just stay at home, but staying home is a privilege for those who can stay home in a safe home. And that's what we ignore because most of us are in that position. And that's what I want people to recognize too, that staying at home, you know, we might've achieved something if we did this early on in February or March, shut it down for four weeks and then open it back up. But we decided to act way too late where the spread is already rampant and where people are now pretty much choosing between what am I going to eat today or am I going to eat today at all? From a lot of people that I've read about from the articles, a lot of people are saying the same point that you have, that there are people who unfortunately don't have the luxury to work from home or to stay at home and they have to go into work every day to provide for their families. Yeah, and, and that's assuming that they even still have a job, right? Because our, our unemployment is 6 million people in the U.S. without jobs now. That's the highest it's ever been. The same up here in Canada as well. Uh, around 3.6 million people have applied for EI yeah. um, in the past month alone. And you mentioned something as well about domestic violence and mm-hmm. police services here in the GTA have released some crime stats since March and it points to a general decrease in crime overall. However, they report an increase in calls for domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Is that why you have to see towards the stay at home orders? So I obviously I work in pediatrics, right? And so we focus a lot on our children, but we also focus on their moms because we know caregivers have a huge impact on children. So We have a lot of children who are now having to sit at home, and when you have added stress to the home, which is a normal condition in any environment, that actually increases your risk for violence towards children. So if, you know, if you're a mom and you have, or your parents, even like a couple, if you're a husband and wife and you have four kids or five kids or even two kids, and they used to go to school and now they're home all day, every day. That's exhausting. That adds a lot of stress. And that can be added to the stress of maybe being financially now not as well off as you were before. And that increases your risk for domestic violence, which we know, which can also cause death. That is what I'm concerned about. Also in our area in Jacksonville, they recently just uh, released some news which said that we've had the ho- highest homicide rate here in the last couple of months than we've had, I think, since 2009. Um, and again, that goes back to the basic kind of fundamentals we learn about socioeconomic status and how these kind of major changes can affect those in those positions. So if you don't have a job and you're not going to school and your home life is not safe, what do you do? Right. And this is why people are people here are scared that people will start robbing and and it's happening. It's not huge, but people are, you know, carjacking. People are getting robbed at gunpoint because where else are they going to get money from now? And how is your hospital handling the situation? Um, So actually, we had um, a meeting yesterday with the vice president of the hospital, as well as some other people in the administration. And this was for the residents and uh, the trainees um, in the hospital, just to kind of update them and answer any questions. So I don't even know if I'm allowed to release this information, but I'm going to do it for, you know, the greater good or just because I'm just so frustrated about people panicking and with the fear, I'm going to say it anyways. So they released stats that actually show that even in the worst case scenario, we have an exceeding amount of hospital beds that would be more than sufficient to cover any kind of hospitalization. 
Now, what we don't have are enough ICU beds, which I think has been the issue for everyone worldwide, um, which is why they kept this flatten the curve kind of um, narrative. But the problem with that is that we will never have enough ICU beds for any kind of large major health issue. So even during flu season, there is a shortage of beds. And that's why we kind of have to triage patients to see how unstable they can be before you move them, move them to the ICU. Personally, in our hospital, our census has been the lowest it's ever been. And that's the same with neighboring hospitals as well. Um, and then I know healthcare professionals or anyone in healthcare who will listen to your podcast is going to be like, well, she's in pediatrics. What does she know? Kids are asymptomatic carriers, aren't even getting sick. So I have reached out to a lot of my internal medicine colleagues as well who have said the same thing, that the census is unchanged or lower um, than it's been with the exception of New York. Um, people in New York are getting slammed because there are a ton of cases there. If you look at the U.S., about a third of the cases alone are just in New York. So I can't speak for New York. We don't know why um, that's happening, but you can think of a couple factors. So we know that New York City is a huge hub of travel, um, has two huge international airports where people are flying in and out. Uh, there are like thousands of flights every day. And then we know that their population density is pretty significant. I don't know the exact number, so I have to apologize. But people are living on top of each other. So any kind of infection that's going to spread fast, it'll be there, oh, obviously. And I think this is a good opportunity for them, you know, in the next few months or maybe next year to look at how they can adjust maybe their infrastructure or the hospital availability of ICUs and vents and personnel that can prevent this in the future. And what do you mean by census? What does that mean? Uh, so census is basically our number of patients that we're taking care of at any given time. So you have, I mean, depending on what kind of hospital you work in, you have teams sometimes that take care of a different number of patients. So a census is what we say is a list of patients. Um, that's, that's all it is. Okay. Thank yeah. you. And are, are you being called to the front lines and assisting with COVID-19 patients? And if so, what's that experience been like for you? So I was working in the emergency department last month. And at this time, um, we had strict, uh, directives from administration where your guidelines for testing anyone for anything, this includes influenza or a respiratory viral panel which is just a panel of common viruses that can cause URI issues like rhinovirus, which causes you to have, you know, like a runny nose or like a fever or cold-like symptoms, as well as a regular coronavirus strain, um, as well as other viruses like human metanumovirus or um, other issues that can cause similar symptoms. So that, along with COVID testing, was only restricted to those who would be admitted from the emergency department due to being in respiratory distress or due to being so sick that either they were unstable or needed to be intubated. Um, at that time, we actually had a lot of people coming in with these kinds of symptoms. So flu-like symptoms, um, sometimes difficulty breathing. But the problem is, if you stabilize them in the emergency department, or if they were able to eat or drink, they weren't vomiting, they weren't so sick, or they weren't considered high risk, which in pediatrics we consider as children who have underlying um, comorbid conditions, um, or if they have chronic issues, or if they're small. So like little babies, we say under two years old and sometimes under one year old or infants. If they're not any of those, then we don't test for them. 
So none of those people got flu tests, none of them got RSV tests, and none of them got COVID tests. And that's the problem. All these people initially who were coming in, we didn't test them. So we send them home. And then we don't know if they actually had the virus, which now they can maybe spread to their grandparents or their parents or anyone else, or if they didn't have it. And that's the issue. So I also wanted to mention that people are very worried because they're saying young people are also being affected by this virus enough to die um, or be severely ill. But the problem is that you have to look and see how many of these young people also have pre-existing comorbid conditions, um, such as childhood asthma, high blood pressure, diabetes, or even if they have already affected lungs due to smoking. And this doesn't necessarily need to just be cigarette smoking or vaping. Um, There's a new study that recently found that even smoking marijuana can increase your risk for coronavirus. So although even younger people are getting affected, most of them are already at risk. And even those that aren't, I mean, we have to understand that even healthy people can get severely ill from any disease. So just keep that in mind. And did the testing not happen because of lack of available tests or just as a policy? It was because of lack of available tests. Right now, the media is pushing the narrative that a lot of uh, hospitals, a lot of healthcare workers are rationing or there's a shortage of PPP. And the Ontario government last week said that, you know, they have enough supplies to last a week. Is that a concern for healthcare workers in Florida in general at your hospital? Um, So yes, 100%. It's a real concern. Um, I think the one thing that all healthcare providers in the country and perhaps along the border in Canada too will all agree on is that there is a severe shortage of personal protective equipment. So the problem with this is that you are telling us that this disease is so severe, it's killing people, but you're not giving workers who are seeing hundreds of maybe patients that could have COVID the equipment they need to save themselves. And so there are a couple of issues with this that we discussed also in the emergency department when we were seeing this often. So we're telling everyone to stay at home. Um, But when people come into the emergency department, if we don't have the necessary equipment to wear, we're just transmitting a possible virus from one patient to the other, because now we're not changing masks in between. We're not changing goggles in between. We're not changing gowns in between because we don't have enough. So initially before all this, so let's say last year before this was an issue, The guideline was that every time you see a patient, you need to change your gloves and you need to change your mask and you need to change your gown in between every single patient because that's infection control. Now, with this virus that we're seeing is so contagious, we're being told to wear your mask for a week to a month at a time. And that's not an N95. I'm just talking about a procedural mask. That's disgusting because those are not meant to last a week or a month. And by us doing that, we're being the ones that are carrying this virus to potentially other patients who maybe didn't have it to begin with. That's the problem I have. And then the second thing is that we are being restricted onto how many are given to each department. So if your department, so I work for pediatrics. So once we get enough, you know, pediatrics, that's it. We don't get anything for a week unless, you know, they say unless it's soiled or unless it breaks. But being soiled is is kind of late at the end. It means that your your mask is full of maybe spit or blood or whatever else happens to your mask. And 
there's not immediate availability to get that either. So you have residents and you have doctors and nurses who are dying from coronavirus where you hear on the news and they don't know why, but a huge possible reason is because the PPE they're wearing is not working anymore once you're wearing it for three or four days. The N95, we say, only lasts for a certain amount of time before you need to sterilize it. And so we sterilize it with UV radiation, but most of those masks can only sterilize five times. And now the thing is, the feds are holding on to these N95s and no one really knows where they're going to, you know, when they're going to get a shipment. So just yesterday we were talking to our program director and she was saying that we don't have enough supply because we're supposed to be getting more, but no one knows when we're going to get them. And that's the problem. I mean, as a government, as someone who's taking care of a country, why are we rationing this necessary equipment? We have thousands of bombs. We have guns. We have all these tanks, but we don't have masks. We don't have gloves. We don't have gowns. We don't have goggles. Like, that's ridiculous to me. Um, And the next thing I want to say is that new CDC guidelines that we were just informed of have said that If we are wearing uh, face masks and goggles and we come into contact with someone who may have COVID who is also wearing a face mask, now you're considered low risk. So if that's the actual truth, then you don't need to have countries shut down anymore. You can open them back up and everyone can just wear masks and now everyone's low risk. So there's obviously some kind of discrepancy between guidelines and what's actually going on. Yes, it's very unfortunate because when SARS hit Toronto, a large portion of those who passed away were healthcare workers uh, trying to treat their patients. And right now, uh, I think in Ontario by itself, 20% or so are who have tested positive for corona have been healthcare workers. Why? Like initially, um, we were all saying that, you know, we're trying to slow this down or we're trying to prevent people from getting sick. But are we the ones that keep giving people these illnesses? Are we the ones that are inoculating them because of our lack of protective equipment? Uh, late this past week, uh, Trudeau came out and said that we, won't, we can't get back to normal unless there's a vaccine. And that could be within a year, maybe a year and a half. So this, we could see this prolong until 2021. Mm-hmm. Is there a need for a vaccine until we get back to normal? So a vaccine to be safely administered takes about a year to a year and a half. And that includes initial phases of testing, making sure it's safe, um, monitoring for side effects of vaccines as well. Um, The issue with that and the issue I have with that is that we have a vaccine for influenza. Okay, so that exists. We have it every year. We recommend people to get it, especially those at high risk. But people still get influenza and people die from influenza. So last year alone, there were about 40 to 50 million cases of influenza in the U.S. alone with 30 to 40,000 deaths. And that's including a vaccine and antivirals. So antivirals are, you know, medications that you can give when people have the flu um, in certain conditions. If we still have that large amount of illness from a vaccine that is not really new, we've been doing it for a little while, then I don't see how stopping normal life until we come up with a vaccine is going to cure the problem. It may help some people, but who's to say that there won't be another strain of coronavirus next year? We don't know. And we can't assume that next year, this same strain will be prevalent Just like with the flu vaccine, we never know if the strain we have is going to be the one that people get sick with. And when people get the flu shot, sometimes they get the flu and then they're like, I'm not getting it next year. It made me sick. 
Well, the flu didn't make you sick. It's just that the strain of the flu you got this year was not covered from the like with the vaccine. And so that's why I have an issue with this idea that this vaccine is going to cure everyone or save everyone. Do you have any predictions of from now to six months to a year? on how this will play out? <laughs> I have no idea. I wish I knew because um, I have been dealing with a lot of personal stuff too that I've been really frustrated with. I wanted this to be over as soon as possible, but I don't know. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any predictions. From what I'm hearing on the news, I mean, their predictions are for peaks. Uh, some people were initially saying it'll peak in June, it'll peak in May. And then for us, they said it's going to peak this weekend. And if it's not this weekend, it'll be in two weeks. So I don't know if they're waiting for the peak to decline. I know initially, um, Anthony, Dr. Anthony Fauci said that he wanted to wait until there were zero cases. That's never going to happen because just like any other respiratory virus, this will continue, um, especially during flu season. So I don't know when it's going to end. Um, and that's that's the unfortunate part. I don't think anyone does. Um, and that's where I kind of leave it to to God up there, because I guess at this point we have no control. Right. And you've talked about how COVID-19 has affected your work life. How has it affected your personal oh, life? Oh, man. So um, the thing is, I don't like talking about it because people are going through way worse situations and scenarios than I am. Um, but just like many other couples around the world, I was supposed to be getting married. Um, me and my fiance have been engaged for a while and we've been living apart for about five years now. So he's starting his residency in a different state. And obviously during residency, we are not given the opportunity to just take vacation whenever we want. So I was supposed to be getting married this summer. That's 99% not going to happen. And I just have to figure out contingency plans for when it will. That's one. And then, you know, there are other friends of mine who have had really big milestones coming up, like graduating from residency or having babies. And I think um, actually that baby thing is the hardest because they're saying that people who are going to be delivering babies now can't have their husband with them because of the risk for community transmission of this virus. So that's going to be contributing to birth trauma in the future. Um, and then we're not going to know the effects of that until much later on. Yeah, I hear you. I'm not personally in the same boat, but my sister is actually supposed to get married this weekend, actually. So uh, we had to yeah, so it's, that. A, it's a lot of people who are going through this. And it's really sad because people don't have the luxury of just getting married whenever they want or having babies whenever they want. And, you know, people save up. I think it was really sad when they closed down um, like the GABA because people save for years and yeah. years and years to try and go for Umrah. And they don't even know if it'll be open for Hajj. So I think that's really, really, really sad. Um, and the fact that Ramadan's around the corner and the masjids are closed too, I don't know. I feel ways about that. I, I feel you. So the masjid that you and I went to, that we grew up at, Islamic Foundation, closed down around, I would say, the second or maybe mm -hmm. the third week of March. And I, because of work and everything, I haven't been inside a masjid since, Mar since the first week of March. And this week, because 
the Sheikh is doing live video sessions. He invited me to come along to help him. So it was the first time I actually stepped foot in it. It was like a completely different feeling. It was really, I couldn't really describe it. People go towards God during these things and now the house of God is closed and you're just like, uh, okay, I don't really know where to go from here. And on a lighter note, it seems that you weren't the only one in your family fighting COVID-19. I heard your dad recently was part of a flight crew to repatriate Canadians back home. My dad works for Air Canada. He's a flight director, so he works on the plane. I I think a couple of weeks ago he went to Dubai their last flight there to pick up stranded Canadians that was really nice um, I think that we should really look around after all this is done and evaluate the people that really put their lives at risk by just doing things for people who can do nothing for them. I mean, he's older, he is someone who is considered higher risk, and he's doing this for nothing else than, you know, helping people to come back home. I think it feels more personal for him because I'm across the border. Um, and if he could bring me back home, he would. Um, but also, you know, the people that we see every day that we take for granted, our janitors, our grocery store workers, the person driving your truck, the person coming from Amazon, your Uber Eats driver, your Postmates driver, um, anyone else that I've forgotten, obviously, which I know I have. We have people, police officers, firefighters, doctors, nurses, plumbers, just your technical staff. And I really hope after all this, we reevaluate that the fact that we see celebrities is so important, that they're given so much importance on our planet. And that they really are not so important when you come down and look at the smaller things. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of my podcast. Really appreciate it. And for final words, do you have any advice to people on how they can survive? So the first thing I would say is don't panic. Um, stop panicking. Please don't be fearful. I think fear feeds the worst kind of characteristics in all of us. Um, we are obviously not oblivious to the fact that there is so much news reporting on this constantly. Every day they report on the death rate and that can be scary, but please don't be scared. Um, don't listen to the CDC. I know, I don't know what's going to happen when I say that, but at this point, the CDC is kind of fluid in their recommendations and we're concerned it's a lot of politically driven kind of stuff too. So just use your brain. I would say use your brain. Don't be a sheep. Pray because prayer is the thing that'll keep us sane. And then tell your loved ones that you love them because you don't know. And I hope after all this is done in a couple of years, we'll look back and reevaluate everything and figure out how this will never happen again. Well, thank you so much, Mariam. I hope that you stay safe and you stay sane as well. Thanks for having me and you stay safe as well. And there you have it, folks, the situation of COVID-19 down in Florida. Thank you so much, Mariam, for sharing your experiences on this dastardly virus. And as she mentioned, there's differences in how states are responding to COVID-19. So hopefully the next podcast that you hear is from a friend of mine down in New York, who is a psychiatrist and dealing with COVID-19 patients. Till then, hopefully you guys stay safe, continue washing your hands, and, you know, think on the bright side. Now, ignore the news for now. And just, you know, play some video games or read a book or two or just go outside for a nice walk because the weather's warming up. And hopefully you guys stay safe till then.